podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, Who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fears, our presence automatically liberates others. Marianne Williamson from A Return to Love, Reflections on the Principles of A Course in Miracles. What if you could be doing anything in the world that you wanted to be doing? What would that be? If there were no limitations, if money was not an obstacle, if education was not an obstacle, if family obligations were not an obstacle, what would your life look like? In this episode, Valeria Tellis interviews Bella St. John, the author of Achievement Alchemist, Discover your passion and create the life of your dreams. Rather than telling you what you should or could be doing with your life, the Achievement Alchemist Guided Journal provides you with the basic tools and then challenges you with a series of exercises and questions to help you understand and then embrace the power of passion. Before she essentially retired, Miss Lee Bella St. John's career was that of achievement strategist, executive coach, professional speaker and author, presenter, and a leading authority on abundance thinking. Bella's adventures and the things she's done in her life make one think she must be at least 179 years of age, and all this with physical and mobility challenges. Among other things, she rode in a husky sled in the Scottish Highlands, spent time down in a Romanian salt mine, raced speedway stock cars, traveled overnight by rail from Vienna to Rome, spoke on stage at the United Nations, attended the Winter Olympics in Whistler, cruised the River Danube, stayed overnight by herself in a ghost town in the middle of the Nevada desert, bought her very own Victorian horse-drawn carriage, as one does, road-tripped across, around, and through America multiple, multiple times in a classic Jaguar convertible, 
visited the town with the longest place name in the world, cruised the Mississippi River on a paddle steamer, traveled by jeep through underground caverns in the Ozarks, spent a week camping by herself beside a stunning lake in Georgia, complete with nightly skinny dipping under the stars, visited the Altausee salt mine in the mountains of Austria where World War II art treasures stolen by the Nazis were found by the monuments men. She slept in King Edward VII's bed, rode on the world's steepest incline railway, visited the church where her great-grandfather's great-grandparents were married, and so much more. Here is the interview with Bella St. John. In your own words, who is Bella St. John? <laughs> Eclectic. On the one hand, I am a lover of, of Victorian and the Edwardian era. I write with a gold fountain pen. I use a my own wax seal on, on my letters, etc. And I even own a Victorian horse-drawn carriage for Pete's sake. But on the <laughs> other side of things, I seriously, as, as one does, I guess. But on the other side of things, I'm I'm a full-on geek. I studied artificial intelligence at, at Stanford for a semester just for fun. I, you know, I programmed a, a, a Alexa apps. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I leave both ends of the spectrum. So, so defining Bella St. John is, yes, eclectic would be the best word. That sounds good and fun. <laughs> so I have a few warm-up questions. Before we talk about achievement and abundance banking, which are topics in your book, Achievement Alchemist, discover your passion and create the life of your dreams. So my first warm-up question is, what is life to you? What is life to me? I think life, from my perspective, is really what you make it. And 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 I don't mean to be flippant with that. I'm a I seriously am a great believer of the the adage of what you focus upon and the way you think really determines the outcome and what you live. So for me, life really is what you make of it. If you go about determined to see the worst and the gray clouds, they're going to be there because you look for them. And, and I'm not just talking about from a metaphysical perspective, even from a human biological perspective. There is a thing in the brain called the reticular activating system. And its job is to go and find the things that you've told it by your thoughts that are, imp that are important to you. I mean, if you've been thinking about a brand new, I don't know, VW that's bright yellow, for instance, because you think you've never seen one and you're going to go and buy one and you're bright yellow VWs, okay, we'll go find them. And on the way home, you're driving this wonderful car that you think was, yeah, I haven't seen another one. And you pass seven of them on the way home. Yeah, <laughs> life is what you make of it. It's where you put your focus. It's what you decide your world will be. So true. Yes, so, so true. What do you think is the opposite of life? The opposite of life. Yeah. I see, I don't even think there is an opposite of life because even, even death, from my perspective, isn't the opposite of life. It's simply a different vibrational form. Oh, wow. I like that. What is the meaning of freedom to you? 
Oh, the meaning of freedom. And I have my definition of freedom uh, actually on the bottom of my bio on the bellastjohn.com website. But my definition of freedom isn't necessarily what a lot of people would say, oh, we to go anywhere or do anything or whatever. My definition of freedom is, yes, there there is an element of that to be able to go where you want, when you want, do what you want, as you want, with whom you want. But but it also includes being loved and being able to love. It includes being able to to pour your heart and soul into something without your own self-imposed boundaries and bonds. Wow, what a great definition. <laughs> what do you think at this time is the world's greatest need? The Beatles summed it up. Hmm. All you need is love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah. What is love to you? How do you define love? Love, again, not going back to the, the stereotypical of what we, what we think um, uh, love is. Love, from my perspective, is, is infinite abundance of joy and bliss. Um, jo- Joseph Campbell summed it up when he said, follow your bliss. Yeah, and that really is what love is. It's not doing something or being something in order to get something in return. Yes, it's wonderful if you have a person or a thing or an activity that you say, oh, I love this because you get some sort of emotional rush from doing it. But it's not necessarily about doing it to get the emotional rush. It's, a, it's about being in that space. Do you connect love to this idea of giving and caring without conditions? Absolutely. But, I, but for me, it's so much broader than that. It's almost like, it's almost like to define it like that is, the, is, is counterintuitive for what love is. In what way, Bella? As in, if you're saying, oh, well, love means that, that you need to, uh, to give and to be and to support, et cetera, without boundaries. It's like, well, hang on a minute. I wasn't even thinking about the boundaries now. So now I'm thinking about the boundaries. Okay, so you're talking about the boundaries for love. So are there any areas? Where, and now all of a sudden, it's, I mean, it's counterintuitive because now the subject of the sentence or the question is not love. It's now boundary. Yeah, I like the way you defined it, just being. There's no rules. You're just open. No, you be love. You don't do love. Right. I like that. What, where, and who is God to you? God for me isn't a who to start with your, the last part of your question first. Yeah. For me, we are all energy. We are all one. I am a believer in in uh, Christian philosophies. Uh, I am a believer in the, the the teachings of Christ. But again, if you look at that, they're all an extension of love. For me, God is a higher form of vibration. That that that, that this is a this is a vibrational soup in which we're living, and <laughs> yeah. and if you like, you know, God is the ultimate of all of that, and we are all a part of that larger vibrational presence. What do you think is the main purpose of the human experience? To be happy to to contribute in ways that make you happy 
to explore in ways where you just find bliss. It, it comes back to the Joseph Campbell statement, follow your bliss. Speaking of bliss, what is your passion? What is your purpose? Uh, I, or two, two separate questions. Passion, <laughs> for me, there isn't one single one. <laughs> right. that's, a, that's a multiple part answer. <laughs> true. <laughs> um, and, so and, that, true. and that would take longer than, than we have on this, on this interview. <laughs> um, but my, my purpose is to, to use my God-given gifts. Everybody has God-given gifts and they're all different. Um, I was just speaking with, with somebody on the phone earlier today and she said, Said, oh look, I you know I I, I compartmentalize things, and I wish I didn't do that. And I I said no, that's a that's a God given gift that you have. Your challenge is how to best use that gift. I said imagine you are a tennis player, for instance, and you you, know, you love tennis, and you have this phenomenally powerful forehand. You could stand at one end of a football field and hit the ball and it could make it all the way to the other without bouncing. So that's a God-given gift. However, that's not going to do you much good in a game of tennis unless you understand how to effectively use it for your desired outcome. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that makes me think about a game and learning the rules of a game. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like even if you look at sports, You know, people say, oh, well, the, the, the line on the edge of the, of the pitch, of the field, of the whatever, that's in. Well, in some sports it is. In some other sports, that's out. Yeah. Do you think in life there's also such a thing as rules? Because I think this is something that we'll be talking about today, the passions and purposes, the mission and how to do it. Are these the, do you consider them the rules of the game of life? Well, yes and no. I believe that, yes, there are rules as far as we have various governments, we have local governments, we have, you know, speed signs. We, they, they, are, they are the rules in which, under which, you know, we have a, a quote-unquote civilized society. As far as rules for life, I am a great a great un, um, appreciator, I think is probably the best word, of the consistency of the law of attraction. And for me, that's not so much a rule as a fundamental principle. Um, okay, so I'll be asking you questions about that <laughs> in a minute. More questions. <laughs> so let's talk about your work. What was the inspiration, intention, and the process of writing your book, Achievement Alchemist? Okay, so and and I and this ties back in. I didn't completely finish answering your earlier question about what is my passion, my purpose. My purpose is to use my God-given gifts to help others be the best version of them that they can possibly be, and to achieve their dreams. And one of the challenges that I found, and the alchemist, the achievement alchemist that I wrote. And by the way, I I liked when I wrote it out one day, and it actually, in addition to the you know, achievement alchemist, if you break up the words differently, it actually says achieve mental chemist, mm. which I thought was, was <laughs> that, that wasn't intentional, by the way, right. but I thought that was, that was really cool. Mm. But where yeah. from the, the, the origin of that was I was working pe with people and they were saying, yeah, but what if I don't know what I want? 
And so that was the genesis of the Achievement Alchemist, was to assist by giving people inspiration, but also a guided step-by-step journey to work out who you are, what are your gifts, and how do you want to show up in the world? What are your dreams? What do you want to achieve? And what are some first steps that you can take in the direction of those dreams? Yeah, I love the way the book is set up, the format. It's like a journal. So we have that space, yeah, to just see our own thinking and patterns. Really great. Um, I guess I also love the introduction of your book where you have some reflections from the Course in Miracles. Can you talk to me a bit about that? Okay, I think that's probably best summed up. If I might, I'm just going to read that small section. And so you're, you're, I think your listeners will be able to get the essence of the entirety of the book just from this one quote. Now, it's uh, A Course in Miracles written by Marianne Williamson, uh, incredible woman. And you know, I'd suggest that anybody Googles her to learn more about who she is, uh, the things for which she stands, etc. But the quote is this, our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant or gorgeous or talented or fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people will feel, uh, won't feel insecure around you. And as we own, let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fears, our presence automatically liberates others. That's the essence of Marianne Williamson's book. I think, I think her words do far more justice describing her book than I ever could. That's amazing. And that's so true. I'm wondering why. Why did you include that section of her book, of A Course in Miracles? Because most of the people for whom I was writing that book fitted into that category. Oh. And um, I wanted to understand if they, what is the difference between passion, a purpose, mission, desires, wants? Is there a difference between these words? I think yes and no. I think one can, uh, I mean, I, I come across this when I'm doing work in the corporate arena, for instance, with mission statements and vision statements, and people get really hung up on, well, what's the difference between a mission and what's a, what's a vision and what's the, I mean, right. a lot of it can come down to semantics. I think for me, there are two, the two primary words are passion and purpose. Your purpose is your overriding, your overriding reason for being, the thing that, that you are here, to, if you like, to do. And your passions are the things that fire your soul and enable you to do that thing you are put here to do. That makes sense. Uh-huh. So how do we know the passions. You mentioned having many passions, and most of us do. How do we choose which passion to follow? So one of the challenges that a lot of people get into is doing what I call not your work. 
your work is to work out, get really get in touch with your instincts and say, okay, so at, you know, I'm really feeling that I should be doing this. I really feel I perhaps shouldn't be doing this right now, right at this moment. And then, then we tend to go into list building mode of, oh, well, next I need to do this. And then I do need to do this and that, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah. My suggestion is, <laughs> yes, a little bit of that, but, but what you're doing is you're not leaving room for the universe, for God, for, for whatever you call this other higher power to assist with the orchestration. If you're attempting to do it, do it all, you're going to miss so many opportunities. So it's not a case of deciding which out of all of these to do. It's a case of listening to your higher self, listening to, to the voices within. I, I refer to, you know, those, those little voices in your head. I refer to them as my hamsters. So I have a collective of hamsters running free range in my head. And, <laughs> and, and I will, by the way, and that's, that's different from my elves. I actually have elves who are real live virtual assistants <laughs> who live in various places around the world. Uh, but, but when something comes up, you know, like if I, if I go, oh, wow, I've got too many passions or I don't know what my passion is or whatever, I go to my hamsters and go, what feels right? Yeah. This is very interesting and resonates a lot with me. This idea of creating the space, the, the room for the universe to join and co-create. So what do you suggest? How do we begin? Would you say silence, meditation, reading, writing? Okay, I, I think all of the above have wonderful value at different times. There will be, so let, let's say, for instance, you've had a really busy day, you've, you've been doing this, and you've been doing that, and you've been distracted, and, and maybe there's children running around or whatever. You know, deciding to sit down at 4 p.m. and meditate is perhaps not the most effective thing you can do to tap into your higher self. <laughs> so, so, again, it comes down to the old phrase, horses for courses. You know, choose, choose what is right and what is appropriate, but then set your environment to give yourself the very best chance of success. So if you've decided that meditation is, is really what resonates with you, then find a time where you can, can go and sit somewhere and, and meditate. I mean, the, the amazing late Dr. Wayne Dyer said he used to get up every morning like at about three or four, sometimes five if he slept in. Because that was his quiet time when the world was at peace and it was silent and he could just be and allow his thoughts to just disseminate into nothingness and hear the vibrations and feel the vibrations of the earth. I'm wondering if we can do this by inaction. Is that possible to develop a space while in action? Yes and no. The challenge with, and, and there's never a no. I mean, you know. I like that, Bella. People will come up with all sorts of, <laughs> yeah. People will come up with all, all sorts of things. Um, the, my, my challenge with saying, saying an, a categoric yes on this is that there are times when we do want our attention to be on what we, were do, what we are doing. And that that is the best use of our time and our focus. But in saying that as well, I mean, I remember one time 
I was, you know, when you're, you're driving from A to B and all of a sudden you go, hang on, how did I get to, to so-and-so? Well, essentially you've done a version of a meditation right. <laughs> along, the, right. along those lines. I remember one time I was driving home and my brain was all off just having its own little time. I didn't realize not only had I gone past my exit, but I didn't realize how far I'd gone until I crossed the state line. <laughs> That was a lot of meditation. <laughs> it really was. It really was. But but also, so so um, I think uh, I think this is a Jack Hanfield suggestion, um, where he said, you know, if the only time that you have in order to meditate because you have family pressures and work pressures and this etc. is he said is when you're in your car. He said, wait until you're at a stop stoplight. He said, and then just go into that meditation space. Don't pay attention to the lights. Just, just, just go into that meditation space. You might get a good, solid two or three minutes of just lovely nothingness meditation space. And he said, "Don't worry, you don't have to look at the lights. Someone behind you is bound <laughs> to tell you when they've gone green." <laughs> we'll let you know for sure, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Huh. Um, I guess um, my next question has to be this one before we talk about abundance thinking: is achievement. How do you define achievement? Is that a, a destination? Well, life is not a destination. Life is a journey. So everything that we undertake along that that way is a is a journey as such. I, achievement for me is accomplishment of the steps along the way. I love the way you defined it. Yeah, and what you said about no destination. Right, everything is a journey and experience. Yeah. Um, talk to me about abundance thinking. Can we all learn to think this way? Absolutely. Now, abundance thinking, uh, and so this is this is in addition to the work that I do with individuals and and coaching of groups, etc. But it's also work that I've done for some time with larger corporates, uh, major organizations, and companies and companies, etc. But what it is, it's it's based on a number of different principles. One, for instance, is a principle called appreciative inquiry. And it was a philosophy developed in, I think, the 1970s or thereabouts. And to, to, to make it really straightforward, imagine you have a patch of ground that has grass and weeds and, you know, and dirt and just, it's, it's just a manky mess. <laughs> and, and, as far as appreciative in, the, the appreciative inquiry principles, you might have some noxious weeds in that patch of ground, you know, the sort that you really just need to dig out by the roots and burn because, you know, even, even their seeds or whatever will get everywhere and it just spreads like nobody's business. So, but then after that, ignore the weeds, focus on the grass. Give the grass everything the grass needs to grow and to be strong and to be healthy, etc. You'll find that your weeds will either just be overwhelmed by this new strong grass or they'll pack, pick up and move to another patch of grass. <laughs> and, and so that's one of the underpinning philosophies is to, to focus on to focus on the positive, to focus on feeding the growth as opposed to stymieing anything that you think might be getting in the way. But in addition to that, it's, it's always looking for the positive way of saying things. It's funny, in the UK, you will find you know, 
somebody say things like, oh, you wouldn't have happened to have a such and such that I could borrow, would you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, you wouldn't, right? <laughs> exactly. Yes, precisely. So, so abundance thinking and, abu- and abundance language, you wouldn't say you wouldn't have. <laughs> right. Right. What you would say is, would you be able to, or may I borrow or whatever? Yeah, so it's constantly deferring to the affirmative. Yeah, I love that. So is it connected to the law of attraction, abundance thinking? Most definitely. Because again, if you, if you think about, so to um, allude to the work of uh, Esther Hicks, for instance, Abraham Hicks, talking about the fact that every subject is essentially two subjects, the presence of and the absence of. So if you are, fo- so if we talk about the subject of money, you can say, oh, you know, so I want, and, and I want more money is the same, same two, two examples I'm going to use. So one example, I want more money because I don't have enough money. I want more money because there's not enough money. I want more money because I can't pay my bills. I won't be able to get, okay, example number two, I want more money because I love the feeling of being able to just pretty much do anything I like. I want more money because I've got all these wonderful ideas of different holidays that I want to take. And I'm really looking forward to those. You feel the difference in the two of them. The law of attraction will give you anything upon which you focus. That's where it will take you. If you're focusing on absence of money, chances are you're going to be looking around and getting more absence of money. If you're focusing on the abundance of money, chances are you're going to be looking around and seeing more of the abundance of money. And the same thing is also reflected in our language. So circling back to your original question. And while while it's a case of it's not all about language. I mean, there was a wonderful movie back in, I think, the 1980s, um, Three Men and a Baby. And there's a beautiful scene of Tom Selleck and I've forgotten the other fellow's name, et cetera. But they're, they're reading this wrestling magazine or book or something or other to this itty-bitty cute little girl. She's so sweet. And, and, and he's got it there and he's going, and so-and-so punched so-and-so. And it, was, it went for so many rounds. And then so-and-so was knocked out and he was carried out of the ring. And <laughs> so words have an effect to a point. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I'm wondering if this is um, a practice or based on a belief. So this is the only thing that I sort of question about the law of attraction. My concern is that we'll create this unrealistic idea, um, illusions about life and yeah, unrealistic expectations. It depends how you interpret your understanding of the law of, of attraction. I'm not suggesting that somebody sits down and goes, oh, I want a castle to appear on the other side of <laughs> yeah. the street. Right. Yeah, it's like, yeah, good luck with that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But it is about attracting the equivalency of the emotion you are feeling. Mm. So I'm not talking about, so while, I mean, this is, this is an extended, uh, this would be an extended conversation about the application thereof. Um, but I'm not, what I am suggesting is that you will tend to find, if you are in a really grumpy mood, you'll tend to come across more grumpy people. 
because that's the that's law of attraction. It's you're resonating at the same frequency. The same thing applies even, again, bring it back into the world of science. If you, you know, the tuning fork, like the things with the two, the, and then they come down to it. If you have a whole room full of, of people with different tuning forks for different notes, and you happen to have a tuning fork tuned to the key of A, and you're, you're, at the front of the room and you have a microphone so it, it really resonates very loudly out throughout the room, the vibrations carry. If you hit that, that A tuning fork and put it down and allow it to resonate, only the other A tuning forks in the room will start to hum. The others will remain silent because they're not a vibrational match. Wow. that's the law of attraction. So in a way, it's working with our own energies, inner energies, and not creating, trying to create things that are unrealistic and, right? No, exactly, exactly. It's not, a, it's not about creating anything. It's about being. Being. I love that. I absolutely love that message. Yeah. You talk about tools, uh, this is also a program. So your book is a program as well. And you talk about many tools, um, which I'm going to be going through some of them. One of them, you mentioned questions, asking better questions to get better answers. Talk to me about that. Okay. Well, again, part of that comes to the, you know, oh, I, you wouldn't happen to have such and such, would you? Is you're actually asking somebody to think of what you don't want. Yeah. So if you're if you're focusing on focusing on questions that really give you what you are asking for, that's what we're talking about with regard to asking better questions. And also, I mean, there was there's an old um, and it's it's obviously not a true story, which you'll understand as I as I tell it. But it comes down to so um, it, you know, a gazillion trillion years ago, whatever it happened to be, there was a plague going through this particular town. And everybody, you know, people were just dying, keeling over left, left, right, and center. And you know, this is probably sounding really horrid given the current situation we're in. But anyway, it's for the purpose of the story. It's it's relevant. <laughs> and and so the town was divided into two. And the the question that was given was was we need you to come up with come up with something so that that this isn't is this isn't going to impact us as as much as it is come up with okay here's your question come up with something so that oh sorry i missed a piece what they found as well were that some of the people that they thought were dead they were actually just unconscious for a really long period of time and they came back to to you know to the you know, was like oh you're not dead after all so so the, the head of the, the town said, okay, we're going to split you into two. Here is your question. Come up with something so that we can make sure that everybody we bury is dead. You know, because they were really, really terrified of burying people alive because they didn't know how long, you know, this is like back in the, you know, way back when, you know, it's a fictional story, but for the purpose of the, of the explanation. Um, and, you know, and they, they was like, what are we going to do? You know, because they were holding mirrors up to their nose to see if it frosted, if they were breathing. But when they were unconscious, their breathing was so shallow that they could. Yeah. So it's like, okay, you guys split into two. The town splits into two. Go away and come up with something. The question is, how can we make sure that everybody we bury is dead? 
And so one lot near one side of the town put their thinking caps on and they said, okay, so what we need to do is we'll put a, so we'll still bury them, but we'll put in a tube all the way to the surface so that we know they have air and we'll put in some non-perishable food and, you know, some, some bottles of water and, and things so that, you know, that they're, they're, they're okay. And we need to give them some sort of a signaling device so that we can hear them. So maybe like an air horn or something or other. It's like, that was what they were going to do to make sure that, that, that everybody they buried was, was dead. The other half of the town came up with a rather more novel approach. You know what we're going to do? In the lid of the coffin, we're going to put all of these stakes going inward. So when we put the lid on, they go right through the body. So even if they were alive, now they're dead. <laughs> Same question. Ask better questions. And that is so true. When you said that in the beginning about asking, when you asked that question, wouldn't, I was just thinking about that now you had this idea of asking questions to ourselves, better questions to our own selves first. Yes, precisely. Yeah, but then you're extending that to others too. So it's the whole, it's everything. So questions should be better at every, every level, really. Yes, yes. So talk to me about the associative or what you call conditioned learning. What is that? Ah, okay. So essentially we're talking about like you know, Pavlov's dog, uh, which uh, some people may or may not have heard of. And it's, uh, if you talk about the, um, so you have a puppy dog and get puppy dog, puppies all nice and happy. And so you've brought, brought puppy a, a lovely piece of steak. And puppy salivates and puppy eats the steak. And so, you know, an hour or two later, you bring puppy another piece of steak and you just go through this repetition over and over and over and over and over again. After a while, you can bring puppy a piece of steak and, and he'll start salivating even before he's actually even got it in his, in his mouth, et cetera. So the same thing applies with people. You know, we, we, we will often condition ourselves to think that just because something has been a certain way over and over and over again, that it constantly will be moving forward. And there are all sorts of challenges in that. But again, that's, that's one that possibly takes a lot longer to go into than we have on this call. Right. <laughs> you use a lot of quotes. And this one, it's connected to learning. You say, by learning, you will teach. And by teaching, you will learn. That is so true, isn't it? By teaching, we learn. Yes, it is. And to give you an example of that, if I said, okay, so we're going to have three different examples here. So I'm going to teach X, Y, Z. And at the end, you'll have info on X, Y, Z. All right. So you might take it into a certain extent. If you, you know, if I say to you instead, okay, I'm going to teach X, Y, Z. And at the end, there's going to be a quiz. All right, so you will take it into a deeper extent because there's now going to be a quiz. If I say to you instead, though, I'm going to teach X, Y, Z, at the end, there's not only going to be a quiz, but then I'm going to ask you to go into the room next door and teach X, Y, Z that you've just learned. Mm, right. Now, all of a sudden, <laughs> you're really right. paying attention and your process, your, the, <laughs> actually, the way you process in your brain is different so true. Yeah. We teach what we need to learn. That's the most effective way, like you said. 
language. Yes, yes. And the the the, the phrase, and I I don't know to um, to whom I should credit it, but it's we teach best that which we most need to learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, before we leave that one, just to, to give to give your listeners just something really short, it's basically learn, do, teach. Learn it, do it, teach it. Yeah. You, you talk about something that's very interesting, forgiving yourself and also taking care of your needs, which I connect to self-love. How can that become a practice, forgiving ourselves? Well, I think it's, it's part one of the, the practice because we already have most most people most 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 of us on the on little planet planet earth have created judgments of ourselves however my 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 true philosophy at, to the extent of that is that forgiveness doesn't exist because in order to forgive one needed to first judge and if you are being love you don't judge but because most of us have tended to judge ourselves, then forgiving ourselves is an important part of the journey. Wow, very important one. And you also talk about taking care of our needs. How do we know what our basic needs are at the emotional level, I guess, the mental level? Yeah, the, well, and it, but even the physical isn't the same for everybody. I mean, I've been living the life of a luxurious nomad for, for years now. I, I have a couple of bases around the world as such, but I, I explore the world. I stay for several months in a country, get to know the place, the people, etc. So for some people, that does not equate to the bottom of, it's, it's actually Maslow's hierarchy uh, that you know, a, a lot of people would know about and that is, is in the book, which is that the bottom very basic fundamental thing is that you need to really have your roots. You need to have a roof over your head. You need to have your food. You need to have your, all of those things predetermined. It needs to be solid and stable. Uh, mine's not solid and stable. <laughs> so, but that's, that's okay with me. I mean, I have a, another friend of mine who now I'm I say luxurious nomad. Yeah, I like the the yeah, I like the, the pretty nice fluffy <laughs> stuff. I have a friend who travels around the world simply just with a backpack. Mm, yeah. Wow. They will turn up in a country and not even know where they're going to stay that night. Wow. That's not my version right. of security of, of feeling secure and, and having those basic personal needs met. But it works for them. So I think one of the fundamental things that I would suggest is don't ever allow anybody else's version to be yours simply because you've heard it. I love the way you talk about being since the beginning of the conversation and also like knowing yourself, self-awareness. It always goes back to this depth of who we are, knowing that, isn't it, Bella? Exactly. And, but see, even the depth even that word for me doesn't resonate because it's indicative of something that is measurable. So how do we know for sure when we are there, uh, although there's no destination, but how do we know the source that we have reached that point of trust within? How you feel. How, it's how you feel. Your emotions are your, are your guide. 
I don't equate with awareness being the same as rules, uh, but but I do I do think that when when you practice really getting in touch with with your instincts, with your emotions, etc. And I'm not talking about hormonal responses. That when you really get used to hearing your inner voice, when you really get used to tapping into your higher power, even if you're having a monstrously hormonal day, you can feel the difference between, between one and the other. And I think that's part of the journey then as well, is being able to differentiate between what, I mean, it's, it's no different uh, differentiating the hormonal emotions than it is differentiating the natter voices in your head that are part of your ego and part of, part of just old stuff that you've decided to carry around with you. I just you know, believe that we're not all necessarily mastery enough to be able to to tackle it. There's a, a wonderful book that speaks to this. That if somebody wanted to go further, this it, it's a phenomenal book, and the appendices with all of the references is just is incredible. It's by a fellow called Michael Talbot, T A L B O T, and it's called the Holographic Universe. And in that, Talbot even gives, even shows photographs of X-rays, for instance. Of oh, there's there's one in there that of a person whose hip was basically disintegrated, and then there's the follow-up X-ray of the same person who has rebuilt an element of bone. Now that's supposedly impossible, but as Audrey Hepburn says, you know, the, the word itself says, "I'm possible." So I have one, I guess one or two last questions before I ask you my final, final questions about fear. This is something that gets in the way most of the time when we are trying the self-talk, negative self-talk, self-esteem, low confidence and all that. So, but fear is, I guess, is the main uh, obstacle to knowing ourselves and developing this kind of mind that you call abundant thinking. Talk to me about the connection between fear and focus. Fear is a decision. It's, it's a decision that you make to allow yourself to be fearful. Now, I'm not talking about the, the biological response of if you happen to open the door and there is a hungry tiger on the other <laughs> side of it. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a very natural biological, physiological response. And I would suggest you pay attention to that particular fear. <laughs> but, but again, you know, to, 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 to extend the Eleanor Roosevelt quote where she said, nobody can make you feel anything without your consent. So apart from something physical, like somebody hitting you over the head with a bat, nobody can make you feel anything without your consent. If you are feeling fearful because of the environment or because of this or that, it's because you have allowed yourself to. Nobody else has made you fearful. I don't think anyone consciously wants to be fearful. So I think you're speaking of the subconscious. Well, no, I... I, I'm actually, no, it's a lot more conscious than that. So, so let's say, for instance, you've just had a situation where you've just heard something. Okay, a lot of people at the moment are in a situation where income has dried up. 
So you've just got that phone call. So your initial response goes into, you know, fight or flight of like, now what am I going to do? It's then a conscious choice as to whether or not you decide to continue down that rabbit warren of fear. Or if you say, at this moment in time, there is nothing I can do about, like right here, right at this absolute moment of now, there is nothing I can do about it. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to center myself and I'm going to just open up to possibilities. Because I've, I've been in tough situations before and things have worked out. And I've been in tough situations where it's gotten even tougher. But eventually things worked out. So it's a choice of going back to the, you know, which end of the stick do you want to hold? Do you want to continue talking about, oh, you know, I just lost, lost my job and we've got this to pay and we've got that, yeah, yeah, la, 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 la. Or do you want to say, okay, what do I still have going for me? How can I pivot in this environment? What skills do I have? What opportunities are out there? And if you can't find any answers to any of that, find a way to help somebody else. It's always a really, really, really good way to get you out of your head and focusing on the joy and abundance that there is in the world. Wow, I love that. The focus on on solutions, not problems. Precisely. That's a, a wonderful message. That makes me think about victim, that position that sometimes we get stuck as a victim and then we blame everything and everybody and that's... There is no such thing as blame either. Blame is a judgment call and we have no right for that. What a wonderful teachings. Yeah. Thank you so much, Bella, for what you do. Oh, thank you. It's been lovely, lovely talking to you. (laughs) Yeah. I have a few questions, but before I do, would you like to add anything? Oh no, you your questions have been have been wonderful. They've been inspired and they've been perfectly paced to allow us to go on this lovely journey together. So no, just beautiful. Final questions. What is success to you? Success is the continual achievement of those small steps that you've decided to set out for yourself. And that can be anything. It's not necessarily a, a doing thing. It can be a being thing. It, it can be, you know, like re, you're looking at, if you have children, it can be looking at your children and going, wow, they are really terrific short human beings. <laughs> yeah, it's it's whatever it's whatever is appropriate for you for you to feel that that you have taken steps toward what you want to be and do and have for you. It's not about the end results. It's about you just feeling along the way of wow, this is just really, really cool. Success is a moment by moment, moment by moment proposition. Yes, yes, a thousand times. And actually, just to add an antithesis of that, the, the, the quote from Albert Einstein, anyone who has never made a mistake has never tried anything new. Uh, yeah, that's another fear, isn't it? That holds us back from being this full potential. It doesn't hold us back. We allow it to. It does. It does. Because as soon as we say it holds us back, we're, we're, we're giving away all of, all of our powers, that not necessarily the correct word either, but I'll use it for want of another at the moment. If we say it holds us back, we're giving away our own power. We're giving away our own integrity. 
Wow. Yeah, you're pointing out two things that most of us are not aware of. I'm not a lot of times, and I try to be. Yeah, the words we use and how we use them and the impact that they have. Well, and it's and the the words, but also the it's the emotion that's with them. For instance, if you were to say, you know, these things hold us back, there is an emotion that comes with that. There is an emotion of frustration. There is an emotion of bondage. There is an emotion of, of, of somebody withholding something from us. That's a choice. Yeah, and I agree. It's okay to make mistakes. Exactly. I mean, it's kind of like one of the, the challenges that I find a lot with corporations is feedback is a really scary word. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's like, no, feedback is, is no other word. It's like wall, door, feedback, flower, mirror. I mean, it's just a word, people. And with, but without, without feedback, you, you don't know where you're going. You don't know how you're improving or whatever it happens to be. And to circle back, though, to your comment about not being attached to emotions... I agree as far as the attachment's concerned. However, I am I am a big believer in the the fact that the our emotions basically are our guide for whether or not we are on our own higher path and purpose or not. That makes sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. I guess the attachment has a lot to do with thinking this idea concept that we are our emotions. We we attract whatever emotion we decide to feel. Yeah, so we are like this receptor. We are a vessel. That's right. It's it's again again using an example that that a lot of teachers use of you know, we are both a transmitter and a receiver. But at the same time, there's no point in putting your radio on ninety six point three. Uh, FM if you want to listen to 1296 AM. Yeah. Yes. Um, What was the hardest lesson to learn about yourself in life? Oh, the hardest one. The list is so long. Tell me about it. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) I think not necessarily the hardest, but the, the, the biggest, most impactful one that really changed the trajectory of my life was, and now I would have been in my very early 20s, like 21, 22 or thereabouts. And for, for comparison, I'm now well into my 50s. And <laughs> so, I, and I was, I was teaching a group of people who were really not much younger than me. And some of them were even older than me. They were deemed to be at risk, long-term unemployed. So they were 18 to 25 years in age and they had been already been on unemployment benefits for a very long time. And my job was to, in, in just a, it was about two hour session, I think I had with them, was to get them interested and signed up and into something, whether or not it was a course, whether it was the military, whatever, it had, just get, get them to do something with you. Yeah. And so I, and ber- now very much, I had, I had nothing. Now the organization was very much formal, you know, you wear suits to work, et cetera, type place. Well, my suits had come from the local charity shop because I didn't have any money. And so I remember the day, the first group of students are coming in and, you know, looking at me and going, yeah, right, whatever, et cetera. And there were two representatives of the government departments that, that basically that paid these people. Um, 
from, yeah, the, from welfare. And they came in and there was one girl in particular wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses. And she walked to the back of the room and sat on the ground under the table and scooched back to the wall. Oh. <laughs> I thought, this is going to be good. Now, this is my very, very first session <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> of doing anything like this. I had never even taught anybody anything before. This is, my, this is the very, very first session I'm doing of this. Yeah. So I started off and said, yeah, here's, this is who I am and this is what we're going to be doing and blah, blah, blah. And from the girl with the hat and sunglasses under the table comes fancy bitch. She wouldn't know what it's like for us. And that really struck me. And I thought, wow. And so I stopped basically mid-sentence. And I said, okay, so you know, I did hear that. And I said, I don't take exception to it, but tell me what I wouldn't know. If you're saying I don't know what it's like for you, tell me what I wouldn't know. What they didn't know about me was that I barely survived through my upbringing. I had a really, really dangerous upbringing. And, but they didn't know any of that. All they saw was, was this, this woman here in, you know, very, I must admit, even though it came from a charity shop, it was a very nice suit. <laughs> <laughs> right. So you have this woman standing up at the front hmm. of the room in this very nice suit, you know, yeah. telling them. You to, and so it was like, like a brainstorming session, you know, where it starts off slowly and they go, oh, you wouldn't know what it was like to have to sleep under a tree. You wouldn't know what it was like to be, you know, you know held up at gunpoint. You wouldn't know what it's, yada, yada, yada. And, and then it came up to a crescendo of like, oh, you wouldn't know, blah, 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 all around the room. And then I just waited until it came off the boil. And thankfully, I have a really good memory. And so I went back around the room pretty much in order. And I said, okay, so you know how you said, you know, I wouldn't know what it was like to sleep under a tree. I said, well, you're right. However, I do know what it was like. I used, I actually used to have to sleep on the beach. And so I, I, under, I understand what you're talking about there. And so you're talking about, you know, I wouldn't know this. Well, actually, yeah. And, and I counted back with my pieces of my story back to theirs. And I said, so you're right. I don't know what your life is like for you, but don't you judge me based on what I'm wearing to say that I don't have empathy and I can't understand your position. So I said, what I'm going to do is I will square it with these people here. So basically the people from welfare, uh, if, if you want to leave now. And I said, so I'm going to turn around and face the wall. You have 60 seconds. If you would like to leave, just write your name on a piece of paper near the door and I will square it with these people. We'll find some other training program for you to go into. And I said, but when I turned back around, I said, I'm full in here. I'm giving all of me and I would really like it if you gave all of you. And I turned around and I remember as clearly as anything, I, had, I actually was wearing a wristwatch back then. That tells you how long ago it was. <laughs> and I remember I had to hold my arm with my other hand because I was shaking that much. <laughs> and, and I waited for the, the second hand to go around and it felt like forever. And it came back around and I spun around and so everybody was still there. And the girl with the hat and the sunglasses had she'd spun her hat around at least so that the brim was facing backwards. She'd taken off her sunglasses. She was still on the floor, but she had slid out from under the table. 
And I thought, that's progress. And so we did that session. We ended up doing that session a lot and were so successful, we were written up in government journals. Now, I mentioned that though, not because of the success that we had, which I think was fantastic for those individuals, but that was the very moment in my life when I stopped being a victim. Wow, what an incredible lesson. It might be the most powerful lesson uh, we can all learn from. So, so true. And I believe it's a practice though. Uh-huh. I have two more questions. If you knew, <laughs> if you knew it would die soon, meaning losing the body, would you make any change in your life or do anything differently? None. Wow. None, not a thing. I am, I, I've actually had a, a couple of life-threatening illnesses where three times I should not have been here and I'm far too stubborn to have kicked the bucket before now. Um, so I, but I made it a philosophy never to leave anything unsaid. So there is nothing that I would want to say to anybody on the planet that I've not already said. There, Yes, there's still plenty of things that I would love to do, but anything that was an absolute, I must do this before I die, I've done because I'm a great believer in not having any regrets, none, zip, zero, zilch. If I were to be abducted by aliens in the next 10 minutes and never to see this cute little planet Earth again, I, I would say that's, that's okay. I, I, I'll, I'll miss people, but there is nothing that I would do differently. Yeah, that's a great answer. The best answer I get <laughs> from my guests when they say that I wouldn't change a thing. Yeah, that's how we know they're living the, that life. So my last question, what are three things about life you know for sure as of today? I know for sure that I know nothing for sure. That's interesting. Really? Yeah. And um, it has been a fun conversation. I love how authentic you are and joyful. <laughs> Your energy sometimes it gets me because I'm very laid back, <laughs> the personality, whatever that is here. And you caught me by surprise. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, how do I act? How do I? <laughs> so you just, you, you, you just, you just act being, being you. Right. We were, we were obviously, obviously <laughs> resonating for us to have come together in the first place. And uh-huh. I've just, I just send you so much love, darling. I've had a, the most wonderful time in this call. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Balan. Thank you for your wisdom. You have so much wisdom. Thank you. And where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Absolutely. So, uh, bellastjohn.com. That's B-E-L-L-A-S-T-J-O-H-N.com. And that has a link to my travels on the same page to my Luxurious Nomad site. That also has a link to all of my books. And uh, and if you like, I'm actually working on a new project that is about to be released in a few weeks. So if you'd like an update on that, there's a section at the top of the page where you can put in your email address and just click subscribe. And so uh, I'll send you info, invites to that. But also I I sometimes have different wino clocks with, with people where we'll have a, a virtual get together over a glass of wine at a certain time, et cetera. And so it, you know, you'll get an invitation to those sorts of things as well. So it's bellastjohn.com, B-E-L-L-A-S-T-J-O-H-N.com. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much again, Bella, and we'll talk soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Bella St. John, please visit her website, bellastjohn.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. I want to thank the Patreon members, Lawrence McGrath, Mark Basden, Terry Clayton, and Aidan Bigrock. Thank you again for listening, and bye for now.